What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast. I hope everybody is doing well today, both mentally, physically, and also emotionally. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and we're going to get right into it. We are actually going to begin this episode because I've already begun with technical difficulties. We're going to hold a brief moment of silence for my Brooklyn Nets. Not only were they the first team to get bounced in the postseason this year, they were the only team to get swept. Yes. Yes, folks. The Brooklyn Nets, the seventh seed with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, did not win a single game against the Boston Celtics. Now let's go ahead and hold that moment of silence real quick. Okay, and that's going to be enough of that. Um, unfortunately, we are not going to discuss that today, mainly because I shot a separate video, which will be going live on YouTube at some point, either Tuesday or Wednesday, where I just spent like 25 minutes or so effectively going over everything that went wrong for this team. And there was quite a lot of it. Steve Nash to Katie and Kyrie simply not making shots. It was an absolute mess. It was some of the most disastrous basketball that I have ever experienced, that I have ever watched. And with all of that going on, there are still every other playoff series is ongoing. At this point, Golden State looks like they're going to advance pretty cleanly to the second round. They're currently up 3-1 against Denver, but... Of course, it's the Golden State Warriors. They have Steph, they have Clay, they have Draymond, they have Jordan Poole. I would be shocked if they went ahead and blew this 3-1 lead that they're currently holding. Um, another team that I'm keeping my sights on are the Dallas Mavericks. Dallas is now up three games to two against Utah Jazz. If I remember correctly, they won by about 30 on Monday, largely in part to not only Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson absolutely popping the fuck off, but also Donovan Mitchell leaving the game with a hamstring injury. Um, I think at some point in the second half, I don't quite recall when, I didn't watch any of the game last night, mainly because I distanced myself from NBA basketball for Monday just because I couldn't, I just, I, I didn't want anything to do with the NBA that evening. I was so disgusted by how Brooklyn had performed. I didn't even watch their game. I wanted nothing to do with NBA basketball on Monday. It was just too it was just too much heartache for me. Uh, we also have the Raptors and the Sixers. Toronto is slowly, slowly clinging back into the series. Philly is still up three games to two, but game six is heading to Toronto, where of course Matisse Thibel is unable to play. And of course with the whole COVID vaccine thing. And this is very this is going to be very very interesting to see how this plays out because if Philadelphia does go ahead and fumble this bag it will be the most insane collapse that the NBA has ever seen being up three games to none and then losing four in a row to an inferior opponent not only that but an opponent who is without arguably their best player in Fred Van Vliet I understand that Scotty Barnes came back from his little injury and that Pascal Siakam is still doing this thing but that Raptors team is not too deep it's not too rife with talent to begin with a lot of young players a lot of you know guys who aren't near the level of a Joel Embiid or a James Harden and it would just be a historic collapse on essentially every front 
There is also Phoenix and New Orleans, which has quickly turned into one of the most interesting series to keep an eye on. As we know, I did not expect the Pelicans to fare this well. The game, the series is currently tied two games to two. And I understand that Devin Booker is not playing, but the Suns still have a tremendous amount of talent, even without Devin Booker, who's still dealing with this hamstring strain. You have Chris Paul, who popped off a couple nights ago in the fourth quarter, not of game four. He actually had a really forgettable performance in game four. I believe it was game three, either game two or game three. You still have DeAndre Ayton, who's giving you incredible minutes, who's been giving you incredible minutes the entire season. You still have Jay Crowder, Cam Johnson, McCall Bridges, but the Pelicans are not laying down. And I talked about this in the video that I shot the other day. And yes, they have Brandon Ingram. They have CJ McCollum. They have Jonas Valanciunas. And they have, you know, Jose Alvarado. They have Herbert Jones. But this team should really not be anywhere near the Phoenix Suns. And we have to give credit to Willie Green, who's really found a way to rally this young team and, you know, put them in positions to succeed. So all the credit in the world to them, I think that's going to be one of the more highly anticipated series going forward. Um, a couple of the more underwhelming series, unfortunately, are happening between Miami and Atlanta and Milwaukee and Chicago. Both Milwaukee and Miami are up tremendously, three games to one on both of those teams. I felt that Chicago would have a much easier, or I don't want to say a much easier time, but they would give up much more of a fight because they have DeMar and they have Zach Levine, and that offense can put up 120 points in the blink of an eye. They're also a decent defensive team. Of course, Milwaukee is probably the best team in the conference, and I say probably only because Boston has really impressed me. I know that it was they only played four games against Brooklyn, but that was some of the most incredible basketball I had watched all year. And as someone who absolutely despises the Boston Celtics, I can't, I can't stop giving everybody on that team credit from Ime Udoka to Marcus Smart to Jalen Brown to Jason Tatum to Al Horford to everybody just from top to bottom coaching staff front office everyone put the they not only put the right pieces on onto the team but they also put the right pieces in the right spots and then eventually it just got to the point where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were making shots and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were not but Milwaukee's defense has been particularly stifling in their series against Chicago. Chicago, I'm just checking all the stats now, shooting about 40% from from the field overall and 28% from three. Of course, their 28% from three is largely because their two most voluminous scorers, Nikola Vucevic and DeMar DeRozan, are not three-point shooters by any means. DeMar is like... It's like DeMar will die if he takes a three. That game the other night, I was talking to uh, my one of my one of my homies, and he was telling me about this parlay that he put, and every single bet on the parlay hit except he took the over on DeMar DeRozan to make one three. This dude took 31 shots and didn't make a single three. So that's where Chicago is at right now. If you just look at their numbers, they are essentially getting no production from anyone outside their big three, which kind of sucks, especially considering, you know, Kobe White not really doing much of anything. Patrick Williams, who's come back from injury recently, like Milwaukee looks content to kind of just let DeMar and Levine and Vucevic do their thing at the expense of 
everybody else because they know that those three guys will not be able to beat this Bucks team who has six guys averaging double digits. Yes, one of those six guys is Chris Middleton, who's currently not playing. But regardless, I mean, they know that Giannis at their best is going to be better than any of those three guys on Chicago at their best. I mean, Giannis is at, he's averaging damn near 28 and 15 with seven board, with seven assists and almost two blocks while shooting 54% from the field. Uh, another reason to believe that Giannis is, he's simply the most dominant player in the NBA right now, which is kind of, I mean, it's not, you know, kind of anything. It's actually quite expected because it's Giannis, but I know Miami has been really just kicking the dick, kicking the Hawks cocks, but I truly believe that the two best teams in the Eastern Conference right now are Milwaukee and Boston. More Not only just because of how efficiently and how beautifully their offenses ran, but as I was watching Boston's effort on defense, they took it to another level, like total team domination from Boston. And again, I talk about this in the video, so I don't want to get too redundant, but switchability, length, versatility, everything. Milwaukee has all of the same. They're extremely long on the perimeter. They have tremendous size. They can play Giannis at the five and still have a legitimate and still be able to run their regular offense. And, you know, when Middleton comes back, this team is going to really begin to get back to their peak dominance. As we shift over to the Western Conference, however, um, I got I to gotta find it. I am particularly worried about Utah, and I think I may have touched on this a few minutes ago, but this team is... This team just, not to bite off Stephen A. Smith and not to, not to, um, I guess, you know, t- sound too redundant because last week I talked about how the Jazz make me sick. This team is just so, so frustrating to watch. I could see how if you're a Jazz fan, it is a chore being associated with this team because you weren't able to steal the two games, the two home games from Dallas to begin the series without Luka Doncic. As we know, Jalen Brunson popped the fuck off, had like 76 points in his first two games, including 41 in game two. You weren't able to steal them. And, you know, credit to the Jazz. They didn't get blown out in either of these games. Up until Monday night, actually, every game was decided by six points or fewer. In total, it's, I think, 19. The first three games had margins of six, six apiece. And then, you know, that one-point victory in Game 4 that Utah managed to um, to pull out. But we're really seeing the Jazz, and we have been seeing the Jazz do this year after year, that when Donovan Mitchell is not the focal point of the offense, he is essentially useless. Or not he, pardon me. The team is essentially useless. Like, they need a secondary star more um, rapid, rapidly is not even the word because there's no rapid way to get that, but they need to start worse than anybody else in the league because Mitchell's numbers, 26 points, he's shooting below 40% from the field, but he's also taken taken a third of their shots to begin the series. He's attempted 116 of their 390 field goals. Jordan Clarkson, I get it, six man of the year, 
type guy, won the award two years ago, was should have been in contention for this year. He's giving you 18, but he is not a Zach Levine type. He is not an Anthony Davis type. He's not a Chris Middleton. He's not a Kyrie Irving. Like, if Donovan Mitchell is your Kevin Durant, and I know we're not actually not going to use the Nets as an example because of how piss poorly they played, but if Donovan Mitchell is your Jason Tatum, which he is, you need a Jalen Brown, a secondary shot creator who doesn't have to facilitate because JB doesn't really do much of that. Granted, he is an improved passer, but that's not his primary role. His primary role is to create for himself, play away from the ball, cut, find open spaces in the defense, do that kind of thing. The Jazz don't have that. Bogdan Bogdanovic, Boyan Bogdanovich does not bring that. He's a floor spacer. When Joe Ingles was healthy, he was not bringing that. He was a floor spacer. Granted, was a better playmaker than anyone else they had on the team, but still, their offense has always been... The, their philosophy is, how do we get by when Donovan Mitchell is either not playing or not playing well? Trying to survive those minutes without him has been a tremendous chore for this team. And Rudy Gobert is not that guy. You're paying... $200 million to a guy who's averaging 12 points and has only taken 27 shots in five games. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like, you're, the Jazz are not a championship contender with Rudy Gobert as their number two. They aren't. There is no team in contention where one of their two or three best players is not a demon on offense. Go down the list. Even Jonas, even Jonas Valanciunas, who is not one of the premier bigs in the NBA, he went out and gave them 20-plus the other night. Like He's a dude who you can at least dump the ball down to in the post. There were several sets that New Orleans ran a couple nights ago against Phoenix where the set was getting Valanciunas an open shot in the post against DeAndre Ayton. No less also is a much improved three-point shooter. Did lead the league in three-point percentage for a little bit of this year. But the Jazz are just in such such a bad spot. And to, and to not even have two victories, let alone be convincing victories, because say what you will about Dallas, I have been so impressed by how this team has carried on without Luka. I know he's back, but he's still trying to get back into like the flow of everything. Some of the minutes have been a little rocky, particularly on defense, but this is nothing new. I mean, still, he's Luka Doncic. He's going to get into a flow rather quickly. But the the way that DFS and Jalen Brunson and Maxi Kleba and Reggie Bullock, Dwight Powell, the way that these guys were able to stick it to Utah and say, hey, we might beat you without our best player, or we are we did beat you without our best player once already. And then for Luca to come back, the Jazz knew that once Luca came back, this series was going to shift. Like as much as you want to target him defensively, which is what teams do all the time because he's not a good defender. But you can do that, and then look at this: Luca comes back and scores sixty-three points in two games while shooting fifty-one from the field and these were the shots that he was getting all season long these were the shots that he's been getting ever since he came into the league like this calf strain I don't know if the Jazz were expecting him to you know kind of struggle 
to come back and get back into the flow of everything. There was none of that. He came back and it was like he never left. It was like he took two games off just to go to Vegas and he forgot that the playoffs started and he had to jump on a plane and fly into Utah for the rest of the series. Like this dude came back and immediately looked like the player of old. And I don't know what the situation is like with Donovan Mitchell. I don't know what his future looks like, at least um, not future in in um Utah cuz that's uh, that's that's an entirely different conversation um Dorian Finney-Smith after Donovan Mitchell praised him for lockdown defense this series I appreciate it but we got one more I hope he keeps struggling that's awesome um so it says that he was going to be reevaluated on Tuesday and this is a hamstring injury Hamstrings are particularly troublesome to come back from. You know, we had Chris Paul, we had James Harden, we have Devin Booker. We don't know when he's coming back, and we also don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. I mean, this is not something that players take lightly. This is not an injury that players enjoy dealing with because, as I've mentioned before, and as any medical professional will tell you, or as any athlete will tell you, it's something that is so tricky to heal because it's a muscle. It's not like you roll an ankle or, you know, something to that degree where it's just kind of sore because like the ligaments or whatever got hyperextended or, you know, whatever, you know, ice elevation, compression, all that. You can't do that with the hamstring. And it's so integral to how, especially someone like Donovan Mitchell plays because he's so athletic and so many of his points come with him going downhill and getting into the paint and doing all that fun stuff um there really weren't many stories I know that there was a lot of stuff that the Nets spoke about especially after their game and I do I guess I want to touch on it because it had come out after I did the video yesterday and that video is already 25 minutes long I really don't want to go back and add to it because we're looking at like another mini podcast episode So, uh, oh, this is going to be good. One of the juiciest bits that came out of the press conference yesterday is Kyrie spoke about how him and Kevin Durant are going to kind of co-manage the franchise alongside Sean Marks and the rest of upper management. And this art, I guess I should change the, uh, I apologize to anyone who's watching this like on video, but I've been having some issues with, uh, OBS Lately, like yesterday when I did do the video, the audio just stopped working. So I'm going to be periodically just opening this tab to make sure that everything is functioning properly. So if you're watching this on video, uh, I apologize if that's a little annoying. But unfortunately, I don't have a second monitor. I don't have any way to, you know, monitor OBS separately. So we're just kind of, we're just going to have to live with it. Anyway, this article is courtesy of the Dirty Rag. That is the New York Post. Former Celtics guard Eddie House. Eddie House was a fucking demon on 2K, by the way. I remember playing with with the Celtics back in like 2K9 or 2K10 whenever Eddie House was playing. Bro, this guy was twisted. His three ball, insane. And I always loved that he was someone who rocked, rocked the high socks, the knee socks. Not only really taking it back to like YMCA 
football. But anyway, Eddie House and Kendrick Perkins had their very own roast of Kyrie Irving after Boston swept Brooklyn in the first round NBA playoff series. House and Perk took issue with Irving's comments after the Nets lost in Game 4, in which the point guard discussed himself and KD, quote, managing the franchise together alongside Joe Sy and Sean Marks. Quote, as soon as he started talking for the first minute, I had to mute it, Perkins said during an interview on NBC Sports Boston. He said a whole lot of nothing talking about the direction that they're going in and things to do with that nature. No, you and Kevin wanted to come together in Brooklyn to the Brooklyn Nets to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to come in and compete for a championship. Nets got swept, not throwing people under the bus, not saying we're looking forward to next offseason making some adjustments. As much as I hate to give Kendrick Perkins credit or to give you know, like media people credit just because a lot of the time they sensationalize shit just because it's the nature of the business. And I totally understand, but I want, I wholeheartedly agree with Kendrick Perkins. I don't think anyone has been more hypercritical of Brooklyn than I have this season. Um, or more recently throughout the postseason. like it's just, it was so fucking frustrating watching this team. And I hope that there are other Nets fans that shared the sentiment, but these post-game conferences they don't bring anything to the table players don't say anything I mean the one thing I don't I'm not like mad that Kyrie said that he's going to co-manage the franchise because this is what star players do okay we we know this is the player empowerment era every superstar has a say in what their team does this is nothing new to come out and say it is a little odd but you know he just he's just speaking in vagities he's speaking in philosophical terms but um, I agree with Perk when he says you and KD came to Brooklyn to win a title. They got swept straight up. They did not look engaged. They did not like. They did not look like a team that was ready for the playoffs for whatever reason. And to this day, Kevin Durant is still fine with Steve Nash coaching. The two seemingly have a very good relationship, and that's all well and good. I shit on Steve Nash super hard. I it's to the point that I'm like almost bullying him at times, but. It, he's just so incompetent when it comes to being a basketball coach. I'm not attacking his character. I'm not attacking him as a person. I always try to keep that out of it when discussing athletics just because who the athlete is outside of their job has no bearing on who they are in their job, okay? Just because someone's a fucking psychopath on the basketball court or because someone's stupid on the sideline doesn't mean that they're psychopathic or they're stupid outside of it. It just means that that's at least in regards to psychopathy, that's just their personality trait. That's just the heightened emotions of competition. And in terms of incompetence, like Steve Nash is a rookie head coach with no previous coaching experience, not even high school, no college, nothing. I saw someone say yesterday that he was a vibe curator with the Golden State Warriors. And I think that about sums it up. Anyway, um, House went on to agree with Perkins with whom they won a championship in 2008 and explained that Irving needs to focus on the game while allowing the front office to handle business. He talked in so many circles, I started to get dizzy. I'm thinking to myself, man, hold up. He's going there, he's going there, and then he's trying to downplay stuff, so that's what I don't like. Don't try to downplay it. Y'all came here, y'all got whooped. The Celtics had a game plan. Y'all y'all couldn't figure it out. They smacked y'all. The Celtics smacked y'all. These, these is facts, 100%. Brooklyn straight up got smacked around. Boston was the better team. From top to bottom, I already mentioned it. I will never argue that point. Um, yeah, as I already mentioned, I'm starting to talk in circles now. But Brooklyn, they just straight up got clapped. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can analyze it all you want. You can point to all of the little um, holes in the offense and how piss poor the effort was on defense. Ultimately, those things are true, but it all came together and and culminated in one of the most unlikely ass whoopings of all time.
Don't try to start, oh, the team ain't been together. Well, whose fault was that? You were part of that. You were the reason. And I'm not here to judge no man on what decisions he wants to make for his life, but at the same time, you affected your team not being together. Then you talk about, oh, the heavy lifting. What heavy lifting did you do? You played 29 games, brother. I mean, come on. Who created all that extra heavy lifting? You, Kyrie Irving. Kyrie's, uh, and he did come out and say that his whole decision, his whole uh, vaccination thing was ultimately a distraction which yes it was and i'm not sure how he didn't see that i'm not sure how he didn't see that from a mile away it's kind of like oh well if it isn't the consequences of my own actions and listen i've been super critical on Kyrie irving as well when it comes to his uh, reluctance to get vaccinated not just from a basketball perspective because ultimately during the covid pandemic that is secondary above all else it is a health crisis it's a you know, getting vaccinated is a decision not only to protect yourself, but to protect all of the people around you, whether they be immunocompromised. I know I have people who are immunocompromised in my family, whether older people, I have grandparents, you know, I have my girlfriend's parents, I have my friend's parents who I'm seeing. And as someone who initially was also skeptical of getting the vaccine, because I think that is, you know, the right, the correct way to go about it like obviously be skeptical listen to the to the consensus of the medical experts because ultimately they know more about this stuff than you do i get it it's his decision not to get vaccinated i just think it was i think it was silly i think it was dumb um again not just for basketball reasons but for um for public health reasons and i've already you know talked about that vaccination stuff ad nauseum uh I don't know who's saying, oh, Eddie House continued, so at the end of the day, you don't get on here and start trying to talk with that slouch and get to talking sad and then talking about upper management. Don't talk about upper management and this and that, because whatever y'all are doing, y'all need to stop and let the people upstairs handle their business, and y'all need to handle business on the court because y'all just got molly whopped. I do think there is, um, I do think there is a nice middle ground here because I, I can't speak to all for major sports, at least here in America. I also can't obviously speak to the decisions of... Um, fuck. I totally just lost my train of thought here. I can't talk about how, you know, clubs are football or soccer clubs, obviously. I was going to say football, but I forgot I live in America. How they're run. But in the NBA, I get really nervous when front office people are left to uh, pretty much operate on their own devices. Because all too many times I've seen front office people just take something and light it on fire, turn it to dust, and then admire their arson job and be like, I just don't understand how that happened. Maybe I'm not being too um, forgiving to you know general managers and people in the front office, but like a lot of the times they don't know what's going on because there is a mutual, there is a disconnect between how players and coaches see basketball and how people in the front office see basketball. The coaches and players see it as a sport. I'm fucking opening my file explorer. What's going on? No, that was an accident. So they, the players and coaches see it as a sport, as competition, whereas ownership and people in front offices tend to see it more as a business because that is their background a lot of general managers come from the business world a lot of owners come from the business world and the way you kind of broker that is to bring in people who have basketball experience 
I'm thinking about people like Lawrence Frank, former coach, was a long time, was a long time coach, has a basic understanding of how a basketball team is supposed to function on the floor, and he can apply those same philosophies to his job as general manager. That's why the Clippers have been, you know, as good as they've been for as long as they've been. Granted, you know, with injuries and everything, they kind of fell off, but Sean Marks is another example. I know the team didn't turn out this year as a lot of us had hoped, but to look back on these couple of years that Sean Marks has been the GM of the team and say that he hasn't done a fucking incredible job is just lying. It's disingenuous. You're you're just lying on Maine at that point, and you shouldn't be. But there are other instances. I'm looking at the Sacramento Kings, you know, the New York Knicks. Not, you know, more recently they've gotten their shit together, but they had, you know, their own their own issues. The Phoenix Suns, look at what happened when they brought James Jones in to run basketball operations. A former player who got, you know, did go to the finals, but largely on the back of LeBron James. But still, longtime NBA player, has a clue of what's going on. So I do think there is a nice middle ground. And without a doubt, your players should be more involved in your basketball operations. I think this is a little bit of a disconnect between guys like Perk and Eddie House and all of the guys who played before the player empowerment era. It's ultimately just a difference of philosophy, and my nose is getting really... It's ultimately a philosophical difference, but these guys, I know that Perk and Eddie House are saying, you know, let the guys up front do their job, but I know for a fact that if they were still playing and they're, you know, someone in basketball operations came to them for for their opinion, they would 100% engage in a conversation because ultimately everyone in the organization has the same goal. The only different, the only person who typically has a different goal is the owner and they want to make sure they're making money in in most cases. I know guys like Mark Cuban and Steve Nash are different, but that's what happens when you already have, you know, when you're a multi-billionaire or you're someone like Steve Ballmer, who's worth a hundred million dollars. The players, coaches, and upper management, they all, they all want to win titles. It's just a matter of how do we get there? Now, I really don't have much to say in regards to Ben Simmons. There is this related article. Um, wait, what? Someone, someone on the net says that they're exasperated. It says who, bro? Uh, yeah, we're not talking about Simmons mainly because I already discussed Ben Simmons and I don't want to fucking talk anymore about this drama because it's just like, it's just nothingness, really. It's just an empty conversation. So instead, we're going to move on to the Sixers' eventual collapse as I, I'm, please, God, please. The only thing that can make being a Nets fan any more enjoyable are the Sixers losing four games in a row to the Toronto Raptors. So Philly lost game five on their home court. And I do want to pull up their numbers just so we can all enjoy them together. Uh, Where are we? Here we go. So this ties into what Joel Embiid is about to uh, be on record as to saying. Anyway, after the Raptors took down 
the Sixers 103-88 in Game 5 of their Eastern Conference first round series Monday night, moving Toronto to within two games of becoming the first team to erase a 3-0 deficit in NBA history. Sixers superstar Joel Embiid remained confident his team has what it takes to close out the series. Quote, we're fine, Embiid said. I mean, it's the same recipe, don't turn the ball over. Offensive rebound, we've definitely got to be better defensively, more connected defensively. I felt like there were a few plays where we were not on point and we didn't have each other's backs, but we're fine. There's a reason we won three games in a row. Offensively, we clearly haven't been ourselves, and that's really been the reason why we gave up the last two games. So just got to do better. (laughs) This guy literally said, just be better, nerd. I love that. Now, this is crucial because these Philly losses come as everybody learned of Joel Embiid's ligament injury. Um, in his shooting arm, his shooting hand, pardon me, his right thumb, there was some ligament damage done. Ultimately, it was not bad enough to keep him sidelined for the series. He's thinking that, well, regardless, he said he's going to play the rest of the playoffs. Even if he requires surgery, he's going to continue to participate. And then if necessary, he'll undergo surgery in the summer. But he's effectively saying here that James Harden needs to step up. Um, I'm going to try to find the point in the article because it looks like this is quite lengthy. So I'm just, uh, what the fuck? Where is it? Okay, Philadelphia led for all of 21 seconds from when James Harden buried a mid-range jumper to opening the scoring 18 seconds into the game to when Raptors forward OG Ananobi made a long two-point jumper. I'm trying to find... When asked if Toronto was doing anything to force him into missing shots, however, Harden dismissed the question. I took 11 shots. He said, uh, Embiid later said that Harden has to be more aggressive. Quote, I've been saying all season long since he got here, he needs to be aggressive and he needs to be himself. That's not really my job. That's probably on coach to talk to him and tell him to take more shots, especially if they're going to guard me the way they've been guarding me. But that's really not my job. But we all need to be better offensively. We missed a bunch of wide open shots at times. I just feel like I feel like I just felt like we were invited when I was getting doubled. We were not aggressively attacking the ball, yada, yada. Embiid saying, you know. We're kind of stinky right now, boys. We're kind of stinking it up. We look like dookie. Bo- we look like dookie. Dookie water. We're getting caught with our pants down. And this is, at least in regards to the James Harden front, this is something that Nets fans experienced earlier this year, where James Harden just does not look like himself. He looks like he's lost a step. He's not aggressive. He's way more passive. He's not getting to the cup like he used to. I mean, he still gets to the free throw line at a decent rate, but he's not the player he once was when it comes to shot creating. I mean, this guy, don't forget, this is the same dude who just a few years ago was routinely racking up 40 and 50 point triple doubles. This is a guy who's only a couple years removed from being the most dynamic offensive point guard the NBA or offensive guard the NBA has ever seen. He's down to shooting just Wait, no, hold on. He's scoring fewer than 19 points a night despite playing 40 minutes, and he's shooting less than 40% from the floor. Embiid has not been particularly great over the last couple of games as well for obvious reasons with his thumb injury. He's just not able to dominate as he was on top of the added defensive pressure that Toronto is throwing his way. It's cur- It's just looking like a bad, a bad situation for Philadelphia, but ultimately, 
they did manage to build up this three win series or these three wins in this series. So all they need is one more monstrous game from Joel Embiid. It it doesn't matter when it comes. It just has to come at some point. Even if it's, you know, one game where he's just feeling it and he finishes with 40, that's what they're going to take. That's what needs to happen to close out this series. And when the James Harden trade happened, everyone was running around, you know, taking their dicks out, doing helicopters with them, talking about how the Nets got fleeced. Philly got the, you know, Philly got the better end of the deal. And I'm like, you guys just don't have a clue straight up. You guys don't know. You guys don't know what James Harden looked like in Brooklyn. You thought that he was playing this way because he was discontented with the organization. While a lot of his issues in regards to his effort can be traced back to that, ultimately, he's still not the same player he once was. And I've seen bits and pieces on Philly's subreddit where people are just like, Harden is not playing with any effort. Harden's shot selection has been suspect. Harden does not look like the player he once was. And it's because he's not that anymore. And this is what's gonna that this is what should worry Sixers fans going in deeper to the playoffs. Because you gotta go up against Milwaukee. You're gonna have to see Miami at some point, most likely. It's not or or Boston, I should say. I, like you're gonna have to see Miami in the next round, I'm pretty sure. I think they see Miami in the conference semis, and then either Milwaukee or Boston in the Eastern Conference semifinals. And if Joel Embiid is not playing like the MVP candidate that we saw earlier this year, and Harden has to have a significantly larger role in the team, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be disastrous for them because Harden is no longer capable of handling an enhanced scoring option. It's just, it's not the case. I mean, this dude, it's pitiful that he's averaging fewer than 19 points a night. I mean, he's averaging fewer points than he was last postseason. Actually, I'm going to show you guys the numbers. He's averaging fewer points this postseason than he was last postseason. And that was when he was dealing with hamstring injuries. Like, he was just really not healthy last year. And his shooting was way more efficient last season. I mean, he was still, you know... He was still there, and granted, he was taking fewer shots because the Nets had KD and Kyrie, but he's just... It, dude, dude. I understand that Embiid needs to say that Harden has to be more aggressive because, like, the fate of the team is effectively being decided this series, but I don't think that Philly is going to be able to survive any type of instance where James Harden has to be the focal point of the offense. I mean, even if Embiid is not you know, doing what he has to do, you got to get Tobias Harris to pop off somehow because I think at this point, Tobias Harris is a better scoring option than James Harden is. Um, What do we got next? Okay, so a few days ago, something very, very interesting happened. And... I say interesting because it was something that wasn't necessarily unexpected, but it was still kind of bizarre how it unfolded. And of course, I'm talking about Scotty Barnes being named the NBA's Rookie of the Year over Evan Mobley and also over Cade Cunningham. So I'm going to just quickly read this article to you guys. 
In the closest Rookie of the Year award vote in nearly two decades, Toronto Raptors standout Scotty Barnes came out on top. Barnes narrowly defeated Cavs forward Evan Mobley, winning the 21-22 Rookie of the Year on Saturday. Kate Cunningham finished third. Barnes, who was drafted fourth overall, received 48 first-place votes, helping him net a total of 378. Mobley finished just 15 points behind, making it the closest Rookie of the Year vote in this format. You guys can see here, Cade was way below. 210 points below Evan Mobley. And this is a very strange... This is a very strange development for the Rookie of the Year because I think the voters did something this year that they haven't done ever before, and that was take into account team performance in the Rookie of the Year race because statistically, statistically, Cade Cunningham was the best rookie. I'm going to pull up a comparison of them right now Cade had the edge in points had the edge in basically every major statistical category except rebounds Scotty beat him by two and the two guys were tied in blocks Scotty of course was more efficient and had the edge in advanced statistics but I think that is a disastrous way using the advanced analytics I think that it's a disastrous way to grade rookies because the advanced analytics in basketball are already sussy and to apply them to rookies where so much of those numbers are influenced by team performance and are relative to the rest of the league is a dangerous precedent because these guys, yes, they were the best rookies, but they don't hold the candle to any of the other guys in the NBA, even those who are a few years older than them, Ja, Desmond Bain, D'Angelo Russell, Jason Tatum, like while Scotty Barnes, Evan Mobley, and Cade Cunningham all had, you know, deserving cases to win the award, I thought it was going to be Cade because I thought that Cade was the best all-around rookie. And before him, I thought that Evan Mobley, this was like back in December, January, I thought that Evan Mobley, who at the time was the most statistically impressive rookie, was going to win the award. And you can't pin, you. I think it is disingenuous to take a rookie's team's performance and factor that into their case for the Rookie of the Year award because it shouldn't matter. Cade Cunningham, Scotty Barnes had no say in who drafted them. The majority of rookies, unless they're coming from overseas, do not have a say in who drafts them. They don't have a say in whether or not they play for a good team or a bad team. So... I mean, it's pretty obvious this is what the voters were doing because not only did Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley rank first and second in voting, they ranked first and second in voting by a wide margin. And both of these guys played on playoff teams. And I think that I think that influenced the voting more than their numbers did. And I feel that's, that's disingenuous. That's disingenuous to every rookie now and to every rookie going forward. Because it's never been about team record. It's always just been about the numbers. It's always, the rookie of the year has always been weird in that regard because no, no one cared 
about how the teams played because most of the time, most of the rookies were going to dog shit teams anyway. So it was just a matter of, oh, do we give it to this guy who averaged 19 and 7 on a 20 win team? Or do we give it to the guy who averaged 15, 8 and 8 on a team with 23 wins? I'm looking at LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards, for example. Two guys who ultimately were on shitty teams, did not win many games, or at least were below 500. And LaMelo, yeah, LaMelo won on the basis that he was the better all-around player. Does that mean Anthony Edwards did not have a case to bring the award home? No, that's stupid for someone to say that he didn't have a chance. But the teams were left out of it. And it was effectively just the players. It was the players' merits going up against one another's. So this sent the timeline quite into a tizzy. And, I, dude, I was seeing Pistons and Raptors fans go back and forth on this. And I'm like, no disrespect, guys. But <laughs> I don't think that you're exactly covering your biases in any way, which is fine. You know, I understand that Raptors fans were elated that their new franchise centerpiece you know, was awarded for his fantastic season. And I'm sure Pistons fans felt that Cade should have received the same treatment because, I mean, again, it's not fair to compare the Raptors to the Pistons where Scotty Barnes isn't even the best player on his team. So I understand that he was crucial to their playoff push, but was he more crucial than Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam? No. Whereas with the Pistons... Everyone knew that they were going to be the worst team in the league, or at least one of the worst teams in the league. And that gave Cade Cunningham the platform to just go out and put up numbers. Ultimately, it sucks that Cade didn't win, especially because I picked him. But I I understand. I understand. It still sucks nonetheless, though. Um, before we move on to non-basketball talk, there was this article posted on... NBA.com by Sean Powell and titled what we've learned about all 16 playoff teams during the 22, the 2022 postseason. I, as you guys know, I'm a huge simp for listicles, anything like this, where people just talk in generalities about certain things, but I'm sure, I'm sure there will be some nuggets that I pick up on here, mainly because I haven't been able to watch every series super intensely. I'm sure you guys know that with the first round, it's kind of just like, okay, you pick the keen matchups. Typically, it's like the four and the five because they're the most evenly matched. And then you just watch your favorite team and kind of call it a day. So, okay, we're just going to get right into it. So what have we learned? Here's the team-by-team team playoff report. The playoff MVP, yeah, it's only been a week, but still plays in Boston. Has anyone played better than Jason Tatum at both ends? Maybe you can make a case for Giannis. That's about it. Not only is Tatum averaging about 30 points a game, but his defense on Kevin Durant has been A-level, which means Tatum is spending plenty of precious energy, nearly 44 minutes a game worth, at a high degree, and doing so impressively. This represents just another step in the rise of the superstar, someone who's putting himself in select company. I think that the NBA top 10 players list is going to look greatly different after this postseason I think that the consensus is going to be that Giannis is the best player in the NBA it was 
kind of a toss-up between him and Jokic and KD and Embiid, but I think that Giannis has pretty pretty effectively snatched that title from everybody. I think that Devin Booker is going to be a top 10 player after this, and Jason Tatum probably top 6 or top 5. There are going to be a lot of young people in the top 10 list these uh over the next coming months but anyone who says like I don't even think there's anyone who's going to talk bad about Jason Tatum because you can't there's no argument that you can formulate to discredit what he did in the first round against Brooklyn straight up uh 100% there you you just can't you just can't I watched nearly every minute of every game and every fucking time I watched Jason Tatum I was I was in awe the repertoire that he has on offense. A legitimate three-level scorer who can play in the post. His facilitating has... He's taken it to another level. He's a legitimately impactful passer. Not to the likes of Jokic or Prime LeBron, but more somebody like Kawhi Leonard who will give you, you know, four or five, six assists, but someone who's just constantly making the right play all the time. And then... I don't think he's going to be able to play defense like this at a sustained level throughout the regular season while maintaining the same load on offense, but that's okay. He doesn't have to because the Celtics as a team can make up for what he doesn't give them in the regular season. And it's not that he's not going to do it because of effort. It's just that, as we know, most of the times when your superstar has to take as many shots as Jason Tatum does... They're going to take the energy that they would be spending on defense and put it elsewhere. But late in games, he's showing that he can switch on to a premier offensive score and really limit them. The playoffs, he's like, we talk about, I saw someone, Draymond, I think, said that there are 82 game players and then 16 game players, like Jimmy Butler's a 16 game player. Even if Jason Tatum doesn't make any marked improvements throughout the regular season, He's very clearly a 16-game player now. Like, in the playoffs, he's going to be a legitimate two-way force. And the playoff MVP is a very interesting conversation. But I I understand where it's coming from. And if Boston does get to the finals, which I'm sure a lot of people will be betting on them to do, his performances on that stage will dictate the outcome of the series, obviously. Uh, Milwaukee has a few bucks. God. Fringe, brother. When Chris Middleton went down with the knee injury, there was reasonable sense of concern for the defending champs. I was included in that. Obviously, Giannis can compensate for any loss, but who would be the next man up? Well, Grayson, Grayson, Grayson Allen, Grayson Allen apparently, against the Bulls, scored 22 in Game 2 and 27 in Game 3, mainly by doing his one job, make open threes. He's 11-14 from deep in those two games, and his importance in the rotation only increased as a result. Allen is getting those clean looks just because of Giannis. Obviously, like Giannis... Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, when they're healthy, that's going to be, those are the three horsemen, the three musketeers, the three guys through whom the offense flows. But it is crucial that Milwaukee, and really any contending team, for example, gets adequate performances from their role players, whether it be Brooke Lopez in their case, or Wesley Matthews, Pat Connaughton, uh, Bobby Portis, and now Grayson Allen. I mean, if Grayson Allen is going to continue to play like this, and actively and actually contribute on a meaningful level. But, uh, what is it? Who are they? Milwaukee is 
you know, literally, actually, like eight, nine, ten guys deep. Hey, yo, what's up, man? Um, I can't, I can't pronounce your username. I'm really sorry. I'm terrible with pronunciations. Um, the Grizzlies are on pace, but not at the doorstep. There's no urgency or flashing red lights in Memphis where a contender is being organically grown and nourished properly. So let's be clear, let's be clear about that. John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Desmond Bain and company are the right mix for a team on the rise, but a team that most likely will rise only so far this postseason. If you subscribe to the to the theory that Minnesota blew game three, which they did, then the Grizzlies should be trailing three to one in this first round series. Of course, you know, Memphis played a they played a brilliant game. Obviously, you don't come back down from 26 without like a little bit of you winning that game and the team and uh, Minnesota, in this case, losing that game. But let's also not forget that Memphis was down by 26 at some point to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Playoff growing pains are not unusual for young teams, and the Grizzlies haven't displayed the same dominance against the Wolves as they did while compiling the second-best record in the West. A first-round ouster would classify as a disappointment, but not damaging. It's all a part of the process for a franchise that's doing things the right way, but not ready to sip champagne right away. So what's going to happen with Memphis is they're going to either lose in seven games to Minnesota or I think I sincerely think they're going to lose in the next round because you can only go so far as an inexperienced playoff team. I mean, we saw what happened with Brooklyn against stiff competition, a game that had multiple guys who have gone to the finals and Kyrie Irving, who has in fact won in NBA finals. Like you can have talent. That's cool. You can have good coaching. That's cool. Both of which uh, Memphis has. But if you don't know what it's like being on that stage and that is Memphis is a very very young team I can't think I don't know off the top of my head who the oldest player on that roster is it might be Steven Adams but ultimately they don't have a lot of veteran presence I think they're the second youngest team in the NBA with an average of 25 with an average of 25 years old like they just don't have the experience um, and, you know, to their credit, that kind of allows them to just go out and play and just not really have to think about anything. Like, they have nothing to lose. And that's very weird to say for a team that is the second best team in the Western Conference. But it's a shock that they're up here. It's a shock that they're the second seed, especially with Golden State. I mean, I know the Lakers were supposed to be better. The Clippers were supposed to be better, but they had their injuries. I mean, Denver, if they were fully healthy, you're looking at the second or third best team in the conference and ultimately there are still some flaws that um, Memphis is going to have to address the main thing is before they go the route of the Utah Jazz they have to try they have to make sure that they find somebody who can be that secondary shot creator two guys that they already have are Desmond Bain and Dylan Brooks and I'm curious to see if either of them is capable of maybe kind of developing into one of those guys. I mean, if we look at just Desmond Bain's numbers, no, not Sagana job, Desmond Bain. I mean, Desmond Bain had an incredible season, averaged twice what he averaged as a rookie, largely in part to him being one of the most elite three-point shooters in the NBA. But he doesn't really get a lot of unassisted twos. 
I mean, if we just look at their roster, Dylan Brooks is someone who maybe has that potential. I mean, another 18-point-per-game score doesn't really have the same range that um, Desmond Bain does. But as he gets older, I mean, granted, he's already 26, so I don't know how much more he's going to improve. But if he just becomes a little bit more efficient, finds a way to wiggle himself to the free-throw line a few more times per game, you could be looking at Memphis's second shot creator. You just don't want them to end up in the same boat that the Jazz have where you're paying $200 million to a guy who effectively becomes useless late in games. Uh, next next up, what is this? Nothing bullish in Chicago. It's been a steady and somewhat sad decline for the Bulls who were tied for the lead in the East at the All-Star break and then tumbled into sixth place in a matter of weeks. Of course, they got hit with the injury bug. Now they're a loss away from being eliminated in the first round. Weird, but it seemed like yesterday when DeMar was collecting roses for his fourth quarter heroics while being complimented nicely by Zach Levine and Lonzo Balls moved to Chicago paying off as well. Let's not dis- Let's not disrespect DeMar DeRozan here. I mean, he still did all that. Okay, he still had like seven straight games at 35 plus. I'm not trying to take away from what the fuck he's done this year. I mean, it just kind of sucks that they are going out like this. And I think it just further illustrates that Milwaukee is in a different category than all of the other teams in the East, except for maybe Boston. So that's why those are, they're my two picks to go in the conference finals. But every time we look at the Bucks and think, okay, this team might falter. This team might not go as far as we think. They go out and they wash the floor with a team that on paper has all the pieces to contend with them. And unfortunately, uh, it just sucks. Like, DeMar DeRozan, let's not forget, at one point was an MVP candidate. You know, maybe not a legitimate MVP candidate, but if he finished fourth or fifth on the ballot, people would have been like, okay, you know, I understand that. I mean, this dude fucking broke Wilt, one of Wilt Chamberlain's scoring records and was doing so while Zach Levine was hurt and while Alex Caruso was hurt. There was no Patrick Williams. I mean, the Bulls were a legitimate title contender for like the first quarter, first third of the season, and then they just kind of they just kind of fell off. It's unfortunate, but it can be the nature of the business sometimes, especially going up against a team like Milwaukee. Uh, next, what do we have? Denver and Nikola Jokic can only do so much. I don't even need to read this. We know what's going on. Nikola Jokic is, I think I already mentioned this in a previous video or a previous episode. Nikola Jokic is giving me serious LeBron James in Cleveland type energy. I'm talking the first time in Cleveland where you have this generational talent, this guy who can do everything on the basketball court and not only that, but it's passing at a level that only few guys in league history have reached. And he just does not have the pieces around him to make any noise in the postseason. Of course, those two situations are entirely different from one another. Jokic is in this position because of bad luck. And I'm talking about the injuries to Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. Whereas LeBron was in that situation simply because of his front office's incompetence. But going into this series with um, Denver against Golden State. I knew that this was going to be a relatively easy easy series for the Warriors. It did get a little wacky when Steph wasn't there. But then again, I mean, they had Steph Jr. in Jordan Poole. So, I mean, it got a little goofy. But, I mean, there was at no point in this series have I thought that Denver had a legitimate shot to beat the Warriors. I mean, they almost 
they almost got swept. Game four was a five-game, or a five-game, was a five-point victory for Golden State, or for Denver, if I remember. And, you know, the Warriors played a good game, but ultimately, Steph Curry just really didn't have it. I know he had, what did he have, 33? But he was three of 11 from three and missed like four or five free throws. Just was not his normal self, but I think this is going to be a pretty easy a pretty easy dub for Golden for Gold State, and I feel that Golden State should be the favorite to go to the finals right now. I, who's their biggest competition at this point? It's Phoenix, and Phoenix does not know when they're getting Devin Booker back, and they're also struggling quite mightily with New Orleans. So I think that we're on a collision course, not to show my hand here, but I think we're on a collision course for Golden State and Boston in the finals. Next up, Trey Young needs a co-star in Atlanta. I don't even have to read this either. Trey Young is also being put in prison. If Jason Tatum put Kevin Durant in Alcatraz, the Heat have put Trey Young in Guantanamo Bay. This guy just cannot get anything going. 16 and a half points and 6 assists in 4 games. The same dude who averaged damn near 30 and 10 last year. He's shooting 35% from the floor. I get that Trey Young is not the most efficient player to begin with. You know, he does a lot of volume shooting, takes a lot of threes. It's just it's just par for the course. But the clamps that Miami has bestowed onto this man are made out of tungsten. They're just it is the most intense suffocation I've seen in a long, long, long time. And the rest of this roster is not getting it done. The Jazz have this issue. There are a lot of teams in the NBA that have this issue. Where they're... Boosie Noodles, what's going on, man? I have my... Uh, I'm going to wave right back at you. There are a lot of teams in the NBA that have these issues. Where they have a superstar, or I don't know if you want to call Trey Young a superstar. We're semantics at this point. I really don't care. And then just for whatever reason, they have the most difficult time trying to build around him. And of course, with the Atlanta Hawks, you're coming off a season where you upset the Philadelphia 76ers in the second round. And you push on through the conference finals where you had no business being, by the way. And it's kind of like it kind of clouds your perception of the team. And you think you're fine where you are. But it's very clear that if you're a team in the NBA, the super team, the two superstar, the two superstar uh, lineup is still the way to go. Because when Trey Young is getting clamped, there's no one that he can dish to to create offense. Okay, Danilo Gallinari is no longer the young man that he once was with Denver and with the Knicks. Um, DeAndre Hunter does not have any more potential beyond what we're seeing, at least as a shot creator. Bogdan Bogdanovich maybe, maybe could give you a couple of those possessions every game, but ultimately nothing sustainable. I mean, John Collins, granted, you know, not playing at 100%, but he is still entirely dependent on Trey Young for his buckets, as is Clint Capella. I mean, Trey, yeah, there's nothing more to really say here. Just Trey Young is being put in a bad spot, missing shots, forced into turnovers, and it's amplified by how dominant. Miami's defenses so we should be getting um near the end here James Harden in Philly is not like Houston James Harden I already talked about this with 
Philadelphia, but those of you who showed up late, I think that James Harden is I don't I hesitate to say washed, but he's not the guy that he once was. And if Philadelphia is at any point put in a position where James Harden has to be their go to guy, it's a wrap. It's GG's for them. Um Zion has plenty of reasons to like New Orleans. I also touched on this a little bit earlier as well, but B.I., C.J. McCollum, Jonas Valanciunas, Jose Alvarado, Herbert Jones, all of this. And they're not even like the most collectively talented lower seed in the playoffs, or at least they they are now because the Nets no longer exist. But on paper, like this team should not be going shot for shot with the Phoenix Suns. And yet they are. It's really, it's really, really a testament to just the team overall, Willie Green. And when Zion does come back, I think that right away, uh, Philadelphia, fucking New Orleans takes a tremendous leap. It will be sort of interesting to see how Zion, B.I., and C.J. all coalesce and, you know, work alongside one another going forward. But ultimately, I don't think that's a massive hurdle that New Orleans is going to have to overcome, especially because, you know, Zion, for as great as he is, he isn't the best shot creator on the perimeter. And now that you have two premier creators on the perimeter, you don't have to force him into compromising situations. Uh, the Warriors have the splash triplets. Yeah, the Warriors' death lineup is back. They are officially back like they never left. And touched on that already. Play, Steph, Jordan Poole, monstrous team. Uh, this ain't the year for KD and the Nets. Very clearly, I have a video coming out on that. That'll be out soon. I don't want to, you know, rehash all the things I already rehashed. The point God has the Suns rejoicing, um, except for his performance in Game 4 where he looked like six foot KD, just unable to get anything late in the quarter, forced into an eight second violation by Jose Alvarado. Just a very, a very interesting performance from Chris Paul, to say the least. Uh, okay, Toronto's once again missing a piece. Yeah, we know this. Toronto like sh really should not have made the postseason this year. I don't really believe them to be all that talented. I mean, they have, you know, two very good players and one good player in Scotty Barnes. But the bright side for Toronto isn't this year or next year. It's two or three years from now when all of those guys have fully matured and you finally see what their full potential is. Um, it's a shock to me that Toronto is actually playing this well against Philadelphia, truly. Carl uh, Anthony Towns demands respect in Minnesota. I don't know if I'm willing to go... Oh, I don't, uh, okay. Let's not, I don't want to sit here and disrespect Carl Anthony Towns. I'm not that kind of guy because listen, he's a fucking demon. He's 100% a demon, but, but and this is a big, but we can't just, you know, overlook the fact that he has, you know, kind of struggled to begin these playoffs. I mean, 21 and 10 is fine. 21 and 10 are fine numbers. Uh, same dude who for his career is more or less a 25 point per game scorer. You need a little bit more out of Carl Anthony Towns. He's also like really struggling with foul trouble, or at least he was in the beginning of the series. He just looked all out of whack to begin the series against Memphis. He has turned it on lately and is finally like setting in. I think he's exercising all of the playoff demons that have kind of plagued him to begin his young career because this dude's been in the league like seven years, I believe, six or seven years. And his performances in the playoffs have not been 
that great up until recently. So I think he's finally settling in to himself and, you know, recognizing that, okay, it's time for me to be the superstar that I know I can be. And on top of that, like, it's kind of weird that it's kind of weird that Cat isn't more dominant, especially knowing that Memphis has to devote so much extra energy to Anthony Edwards because Anthony Edwards fucking popped off, is literally turning into an all-star in front of us. 25 points in your first ever playoff series. 25 points a game, I should say. And also that D'Angelo Russell is not playing particularly well. If he were playing at the level that we know he can reach like 18, 19, 20 points, this Timberwolves offense would be fucking chugging along be arguably the most well-oiled machine in the postseason. But again, a young team does not have a lot of experience in the postseason. I mean, Patrick Beverly is their most experienced rotation guy. He's 33 years old. And even then, like, he's only going to contribute so much. And I forgot what game it was. I think, uh, oh, it had, yes, it was game three. So game three, Minnesota really cucked themselves, you know, blowing that lead and everything. But what really perplexed me was that this dude right here, Anthony Edwards, and this dude right here, this dude right here, Patrick Beverly, took the same amount of shots in a playoff game. On what planet, in what universe, what spaceship do I have to jump on to visit this universe? Is Patrick Beverly equaling Anthony Edwards' shot total? Someone let me know. Because not on planet Earth, it shouldn't be. It should not be happening on this planet. You should be feeding Anthony Edwards like he's a malnourished child. Okay, he's your best player. Why do you not want your best player taking more shots? I mean, D'Angelo Russell had 21. Why didn't Anthony Edwards not have 20? I mean, if Cat's only going to have four shots, that's fucking super strange as well. Why is Anthony Edwards not taking a shot every time down the court? Like, these are the kinds of things that team, younger teams have to, you know, learn from and live with. And, you know, I hope that when they were watching tape, um, Chris Finch, or I don't even know who the fucking coach of the team is, was addressing, he's like, listen, we need to get Ant more shots. Straight up, Anthony Edwards needs more shots in this series. Uh, Jason Kidd is the right man in Dallas. I'm going to reserve my opinions on that one. Pat Riley has the heat in, has the heat in position to win big once again. I mean, one, at least in regards to Dallas, I don't think that Jason Jason Kidd is that great of a coach. I think that he landed in a good situation. You have Luka, and now you have Jalen Brunson. You have a bunch of guys who bought in defensively, so that's that's great and wonderful and everything. But let's not get let's not get ahead of ourselves. Or maybe I'm biased against Jason Kidd because I just think he sucks. Like the Nets have this really weird track his this track record of hiring dog shit coaches for some reason. So. I'm receptive to changing my opinion on Jason Kidd. I just don't think that it'll be happening anytime soon. And Pat Riley is just doing his thing. Like there are a few organizations in the league that rival the Miami Heat in regards to their just ongoing excellence and how they are consistently one of the better teams in the league. And it starts at the top. This is one of the few instances of trickle-down economics actually working. You have Pat Riley, who has a rich history of winning as a head coach, and you bring him in to run basketball operations, 
And you get stuff like this. He saw that Eric Spolstra had an eye for coaching or the talent to be a head coach. And then based on your previous success, you're able to recruit big name guys. You have you have Dwayne Wade, then you're able to use Dwayne Wade to recruit LeBron and Chris Bosch. You move on to your next uh, your next iteration of this team, which is Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry. And then you draft Bam Adebayo and he works out spectacularly well. And you're just in a perpetual position of contention. I do think that Miami has the potential to win it all. I just don't know if they have it, uh, if they're going to be able to do it against Milwaukee. Because I think that Milwaukee and Boston are the two teams to beat here. Um, let's see who's next. Um, as far as like basketball stuff goes, I think I'm going to cool it with that for today. I'm already at an hour and 15 of just straight hoops. So, and this is without me doing that video or this is with me doing that video on the Brooklyn Nets. So we would have been close to, you know, 90 minutes of strict hoops. I want to shift to Elon Musk buying Twitter. This was, uh, dude. Fuck sports. This was the story. This was the story that monopolized everything the other day. So Elon Musk, richest man in the world, I believe. Either him or Jeff Bezos. But I think Elon is worth like close to $300 billion. Absolutely disgusting, by the way. Had a joke about buying Twitter, yada yada. And then he's like, no, seriously, I actually would like to buy Twitter. I'm actually going to buy Twitter so that way I can delete Hassan's Twitter account. So, and here we are. Uh, this is courtesy of Reuters. Elon Musk clinched a deal to buy Twitter Inc. for $44 billion in cash on Monday in a transaction that will shift control of the social media platform to the world's richest person. Pardon me. <laughs> it's a seminal moment for the 16-year-old company, which emerged as one of the, the world's most influential public squares and now faces a string of challenges. <clears throat> Musk, who calls himself a free speech absolutist, has criticized Twitter's moderation. Uh, he's not the only one who's done that, by the way. Twitter is... All social media platforms are very wishy-washy with how they enforce their TOS. It's unfortunate. It's just... It's just how it is. Like, there are people who get banned or get, you know, their accounts locked for saying some innocuous shit or just, you know, making a joke. Whereas people who are, you know saying hate speech, the N-word, the F-word, stuff like that. They're just, they're free to live on. They're free to live on the platform. Um, he wants Twitter's algorithm for prioritizing tweets to be public and objects. Huh? Oh, he, wow, dumbass moment. He wants Twitter's algorithm for prioritizing tweets to be public and objects to giving too much power on the service to corporations that advertise. So before we get into this, when you are a public company and public in the sense that you're listed on Wall Street, you're listed on the stock market, you're not public in the sense that the government owns you, that's different. But when you're a public, a publicly traded company, your legal obligation is to the shareholders. And what do the shareholders want? They want to make money. The shareholders want to make money, whether that is increasing the stock price by implementing features 
whether that's um, being able to pay out dividends to them, which a lot of tech companies aren't able to do because they don't turn profits. Tech companies are simply unprofitable. I mean, Facebook only recently started to turn a profit and that's because they built the most robust advertising platform on the internet. Uh, Twitter has not been able to do that. Twitter has been stuck in this weird non-profitable state for almost their entire existence. And when you're legally bound to pleasing the shareholders, the customer experience sucks. It always does. This is what happens that this is not to be ironic, but this is what happens under a capitalist economy where the big companies are only operate at the behest of their shareholders and not at their user base or their workers or whatever. And it's different when you have companies that actually like don't provide a product like Apple will never Apple will never have an issue making money because their products are basically must have at this point. Apple, um, Samsung, Microsoft, Amazon. I mean, Amazon is entirely different, but like those companies, like companies that actually produce goods kind of really don't have this problem because they're going to make money anyway. But tech companies are in this unique position where they're enormous and everyone uses them, but they just, they don't know how to get their shit together. Um, political activists Political activists expect that a, a Musk regime will mean less moderation and reinstatement of banned individuals, including former President Donald Trump. Conservatives cheered the prospect of fewer controls, while some human rights activists voiced fears of a rise in hate speech. Musk has also advocated user-friendly tweaks to the service, just such as an edit button and defeating spam bots that send overwhelming amounts of unwanted tweets. That's true. I don't know how you're going to get rid of bots, man. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Elon Musk, I don't think is a tech guy. Like he's a tech guy, but I don't think he codes or anything like that. And every platform has issues with bots. Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, all of them are riddled with bots. I don't know how you fix that. I mean, maybe if you make the code open source, which he says he intends to do, which I think will be interesting, maybe um, some other smarter devs on Stack Overflow will be able to tackle that problem. But until I see it, I don't believe it. Discussions over the over the deal, which appeared which last week appeared uncertain, accelerated over the weekend after Musk wooed Twitter shareholders with financing details of his offer. Under pressure, Twitter started negotiating with Musk to buy the company at his proposed $52.20 a share. Quote, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey weighed in on the deal late on Monday with a series of tweets that thanked both Musk and current Twitter CEO Parang Agwaral for getting the company out of an impossible situation. Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret. It has been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the first correct step. I uh, Listen, I, I say fuck Wall Street all day. I hate Wall Street. I despise them. So like, I think that's a good thing. I guess like not being beholden to shareholders is a win, but ultimately you're still held by the richest person that humanity has ever seen probably. So I don't know how that's going to go. I mean, we'll see. Another thing, um, this whole free speech debate is bullshit because free speech, at least in the terms that people discuss it on the internet, does not exist much like it does not exist in real life, okay? The First Amendment 
only covers government censorship of free speech, which, uh, by the way, the government already does. Okay, this is not like this should not be new. It should not be new. Look at all. I mean, I can't even really use like Latin and South America, obviously, because it's not the United States. But there have been people, I mean, prominent voices on the left side of the political spectrum who have been jailed for voicing their opinions. Like, dude, the government doesn't give a fuck about free speech. It's a it's fake. It's not real. It doesn't exist. When people talk about free speech, they're talking about them being able to say the N word. That's what free speech means to them. That's them being able to say hateful things publicly and not face any backlash. And if you promote a platform like that, like Gab, for example, Gab, which is like the it's like the far right version of Twitter. If you don't have any sort of speech moderation on your platform, you get hate speech. You get like not you get Nazis on there. Essentially, when you don't have free speech, you have Nazis congregating on your website and then other bad actors congregating on there as well. And you open it up and this shit just looks like a modern warfare Two lobby printed out because like no free speech. No one wants to no one wants to hang out in that type of disgusting environment only disgusting people want to hang out there i mean even with trump's platform god i i wish trump would get unbanned from twitter because he's such fucking content but even on his own platform you know which is people have talked about it being you know free speech you're not allowed to criticize donald trump on his own platform it's in the tos and elon musk who famously uh, i think rescinded so a blogger's Tesla order because he said something, dis- maybe not disparaging, but something critical of him. Elon Musk, famed free speech absolutist, is very, um, what's the word? He's very closed off to criticism, it appears. And that is something that I think will be interesting to see how that plays out because does does he change the TOS to make it be like, oh yeah, you can say whatever you want. You just can't say anything disparaging about me. Um, anyway, talk about Twitter's bullshit stock, whatever. I think if the company were given enough time to transform, we would have made substantially more than what Musk is currently offering, says Jonathan Boyer, managing group at Voyer Value Group. Fuck this guy. Who cares? He's a he's a venture capitalist. I don't give a fuck about his opinion. Uh, Musk's move continues the tradition of billionaires buying control of influential media platforms, including Jeff Bezos' 2013 acquisition of the Washington Post. Twitter said Musk secured $25 billion of debt, uh, blah, 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 and said he's not concerned about the economics. Having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. I don't care about the economics at all. So this is also interesting because... Twitter has weaseled its way into being the most prominent social media platform for government officials and really just for everybody. Like Twitter really is a unique platform in the sense that people are actively discussing things in real time. Like you're getting real you're getting live insight into a lot of different things and this is particularly pre- prevalent with NBA Twitter with other subsects of sports Twitter. I mean, even political Twitter, but at least when it comes to politics, that's a very strange thing because if your democracy is, if your, 
trying to preserve your democracy on a social media platform, you've already lost. I mean, I saw Elizabeth Warren say that Twitter, she said something along the lines of Elon Musk that like, no, but she said the opposite where like, this is dangerous for our democracy. Meanwhile, there are infinite, infinitely more things that are going on on actual, you know, soil that are more destructive to our democracy than anything happening on Twitter. Like this is just, this is going to be co-opted by public officials as another like band-aid to fix as opposed to actually tackling the systemic issues like oh i don't know people being distrustful of the federal government because the federal government is cucked by corporations and the mega wealthy like we still have yet to admit that the united states is an oligarchy which is the strangest thing to me because it obviously is our government does not operate at the behest of its citizens which means that your democracy is fundamentally flawed straight up so you could try fixing that you could try you know legislating actual meaningful reforms it you know healthcare, student loan debt legalize weed at the federal level i mean stop meddling in foreign affairs changing your foreign policy like the biggest issue for american democracy is the fact that people don't trust it like how fucking insane is it that there are so many republicans who believe that the election was stolen that it was rigged and i'm not i'm not talking about voters i'm talking about actual public servants actual elected officials believing that that is more dangerous to our democracy than twitter and then people are going to turn around and say oh well it's because misinformation is spread on twitter and it's like okay i understand that you know we have to use twitter as a way to communicate but ultimately there should be another platform that the government can use to get their messages out to the masses like maybe and i don't even i don't know how you fix this problem this is a new age problem and i by myself i'm not smart enough to do it by myself i don't even think i'd be smart enough to bring a solution up in a group setting i don't know how you navigate this problem and twitter has done multiple things to tackle misinformation whether it's flagging tweets taking tweets down um labeling government accounts um like i don't know if like i think the only thing uh, again i'm like stammering because i don't even know what you can do because i know politicians have like their personal twitter accounts and then their actual office accounts which is the personal account they are they're allowed to get a little goofier whereas the like senator account or their representative account is where they actually like release statements and stuff which i think is fine because a lot of the time, those are what they're saying on the news media, on the news media, on news media anyway. But there's always going to be an issue with disinformation. It doesn't matter if it's on the internet because it it persists on every other platform. It persists on cable news. It persists on the internet. It's just an issue of operating in at least American politics. I can't speak to, you know, politics of the of France or Germany or anything because I don't, I don't fucking live there, but you're always going to have this issue. And ultimately, the best way to combat it is to allow more people to talk about it because the more people that talk about it, whether they're on the same side as you or the opposite side of you, it gives you more resources. This is why people read books. 
So that way you can amass knowledge from different perspectives. And tying back to the free speech thing, free speech does not exist because yes, you may be able to go on Twitter and say whatever you want. And you may think that you can also go out and say whatever you want. But perfect example of free speech not existing is you cannot yell fire in a crowded movie theater and you cannot yell bomb on a plane. Because when your speech is actively causing chaos and disrupting the normal social setting, there needs to be a consequence for that. Because if you yell fire in a crowded movie theater and someone gets trampled and fucking dies, it's your fault. It's your fault. Straight up. Or if just like, dude, you're going to yell bomb on a plane? What kind of fucking psychopath are you? Like, that's what people want to exist, but they know it's not going to work. They know it's not going to work. I don't think that Elon really is going to change anything about Twitter's moderation. I think he may make it a little more uniform or maybe actually be able to allocate the developers resources to crack down on hate speech and stop cracking down on less innocuous things, which I think is the most damaging thing that a platform can go through. Um, I'm still trying to like, Also, another thing that um, I think is getting lost in translation is that big tech uh, is fucking out of control, 100%. If your platform is big enough to steer elections, you're fucking up. And in this case, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, well, YouTube is not as bad but still, I mean, in America, I know in Europe, I have, you know, like a basic understanding, but European governments take this shit a lot more seriously. And of course, the United States is not going to do that because we have this weird thing where it's like, oh, we're not Europe, we're America. So that, that gives us like a reason to misbehave on purpose and not do things that other developed nations are doing, which I find particularly weird. But big tech it has an issue. Like if... I know I already said this, but if your platform is big enough to swing the outcomes of elections, the government has to do something. But in America, the government can't do anything because the same people that own shares in these corporations are lobbying for legislation to make sure that these corporations stay in power. It's this weird, like, give and take. And at some point, the government's just going to have to step and be like, listen, we're fucking done with this bullshit you guys can have twitter you guys can have the memes on twitter you guys can have your discourse for sports on twitter but at least in the way that politics are regulated we're not going to allow you to do this that and the third and that's not going to happen until more and more young people start taking office because so many people in government like don't use their twitter accounts they have no idea they barely know like what the fucking internet is they just know what exists like they just they don't have any understanding about it but ultimately i don't think uh i don't think this is a huge issue i mean it's weird because you know elon musk is the richest man in the world and i think the most disgusting part about it is that like he has all this money and he's using it to buy twitter and meanwhile it would take about 45 billion dollars 
for the government to end homelessness and child hunger. You could eradicate both of those with $45 billion. But for some reason, human beings in America are allowed to accumulate hundreds of billions of dollars worth of wealth with um no uh no repercussions anyway uh we're about to wrap up here however i need i absolutely need 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 to discuss with you guys this this is a video he's a good looking guy this is a video about a man i should i don't know why i said that this is a video about a, a gentleman who went and got leg lengthening surgery to be taller. And I want to talk about this because I am a short man. Okay? I'm like maybe 5'7", barely 5'7". Sometimes I wear my fake my fake Doc Martens and it gives me like an extra 2 inches so I can, you know, finally experience what it what it feels like to be average height, but never would I go as far as this man did. So we're going to go ahead and we are going to but has always wanted to be taller. Now he's getting his chance thanks to groundbreaking limb lengthening surgery. And we were there as he was rolled into the OR. This guy is making a special trip to Las Vegas with his wife. He's not hoping to strike it rich. He's here to get taller. If I can be taller, I want to be taller. Ryan Wade is five feet, seven inches tall. He's come to orthopedics. This guy is not even like that short. It's different if you're like 5'2 or 5'3. I could understand you wanting to be taller at that point. But 5'7, listen, I'm content. I'm content because short people on average live longer. That's fine. Um, I also, I'm in like this weird position where I'm short, but I have like big features. I mean, my hands are big for my size. My feet are big for my size. I wear a size 11, a 10 and a half 11, which is way bigger than all of the other people that I know that are my size that wear like an eight and a half or a nine. Um, my ears are also kind of big. I know everyone in my family says they're not, but they are at least relative to how my, at least relative to the rest of my face. But five, seven is not like super short and the pro, you know, I'm just going to let the, I'm just going to let the reporter get into it. Surgeon Dr. Kevin Debbie Parshad for a groundbreaking limb lengthening procedure. After we had given you that additional height, you'd probably be sitting at very close to 5'11. Yeah. Okay. okay. The procedure involves implanting a steel device into the upper bone oh. on both legs. Oh. We use the remote control to slowly separate the bone. This is the remote control. The remote control signals the device to pull the bones apart oh. one millimeter at a time. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. The body makes new bone to fill in the gap. So I push this button and then what happens? Once you push the button, then that's when you start growing. Awesome. The cost, a whopping $75,000. I've got another seven. America moment. When you have to spend 75 grand to take on this surgery. Actually, I don't even think that'd be covered under government Healthcare. I don't understand how that works with like cosmetic surgery. This is 100% a cosmetic surgery. No fucking way an American insurance company is covering any of this. They don't even cover veneers, I don't think. I don't even think people get their dental providers to take care of their fucking teeth. 75 grand for four extra inches of height. You're looking at like 18 grand per inch. 
And you're not even going to be six feet, dude. You are effectively still going to be 5'7". Because 5'11 is not a real height. You're either six foot or 5'9". Okay? Those two inches in between, they are not real. Hate to burst your bubble, pal. It's not a real height. 70 years left on this planet, and I want to enjoy it to the full extent. And this is something since I've been 14 that I've always wanted to do. $75,000 towards getting tall. God. I'm picking getting tall all the way. The 30 14 is like the peak age where male body dysmorphia or I think it's dys dysphoria, something like that. Where like 14 is the age where men really start to become insecure about their bodies. And it's because men tend to hit puberty, puberty later than girls do. And it's just like you show up to high school. It's like your friends are tall. They have body hair. They have beards. They're starting to get muscular because, you know, your fucking hormones are going. And then there's me, who's been the same height since I was in fifth grade. I mean, fortunately, I had other things. Like, I've had hair on my chest since I was fucking, like, in fifth grade. But that's typically where it sets in, is about 14. And height, in particular, is a very, very touchy subject for men. And it takes a lot of introspection and self-awareness to rationalize it even though it's pretty obvious it's like hey you you can't do anything about this i mean if you really wanted to be taller you should just pick the different parents like it's 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 not your fault it's not your fault man it's not like you have um a patchy beard for example where you can put a little bit of rosemary oil on it to stimulate some growth or it's not like you're overweight where you can just go work out, you know, spend a year or two getting your getting your lifestyle right, your fitness in check, your diet in check. It's your height, man. And you're not even that short. You're not even that short. Especially like one thing that always at least did it for me is like I'm not I don't care about being shorter than my friends. And I think part of this is me growing up and playing basketball. You're constantly going up against dudes who are taller than you, who are bigger than you. And you're accustomed to being the, sh the shortest dude on the court. And I think that kind of helped me with my insecurity about it. But ultimately, it just comes down to like, hey, it it's your height. It's whatever. But at 5'7", you're still going to be taller than the majority of women. So if you have this thing where you don't want to date a taller woman, you're not going to be running into issues like that. And even now, they showed his wife in the beginning they're about the same height. I mean, it's probably worse when they go to uh, like a wedding or something and she's wearing heels, but like. Two-year-old is also tired of wearing shoe implants. The procedure will add three inches to Ryan's height. A huge difference. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be pretty close to right there. <laughs> Being taller than my wife is going to be, it'll be a treat. At Sunrise Hospital and Medical Center, Teresa is confident. I think he'll do great. On his way to the OR, Ryan gets a good luck kiss. I am super excited. Oh, man. The doctor begins by taking precise measurements oh, God. of Ryan's leg. I can't watch. The, oh, Next, he drills stuff, into the watch. bone, then surgically breaks the bone. Oh, He creates oh, a channel in the thigh bone for the implant. So you can see it kind of going right down the center of the bone. The implanted device is secured with screws that are drilled in above and below the break in the bone. He repeats the procedure on Ryan's other leg. Finally, the remote is tested to ensure the bone is separating. Success. Oh, the implant worked. After three hours, Ryan is wheeled out of the OR. Dr. Debbie Parshad has good news. 
So everything went very well. Bend that knee. Now, three months of grueling physical therapy begins. That's stiff. Ryan's it's not even like, okay, three-hour surgery, not bad. Definitely worse surgeries. But it's not even that. It's the rehab. Because they said three months, but I'm not going to let them finish because I enjoy uh, I enjoy cutting people off. It's like a year's worth of rehab. Like you can't even start physical activity for a year because you have to relearn to walk because the doctor just fucking broke both of your femurs. All of this to not even be six foot. Muscles need to be stretched as his bones grow. Oh, God. Hard work. It was the most painful thing that I've ever gone through in my life. David Wilson of Los Angeles had the same procedure last year. So, for all the audio listeners, this guy who also had the same procedure is now shown running, and it just does not look pleasant. It looks unnatural. It looks... He was five. It looks very weird. stretched two inches to 5'9". As my legs got longer, I needed to extend my seat back further so I could have this adjustment room right here. The little things cool. in my right. It's kind of cool. Words for Ron. <laughs> Run that back. I could have this adjustment room right here. It was kind of cool. And he has encouraging All words for Ryan. <laughs> for, it's kind of cool. Oh, God. Back to normal pretty darn quick oh, with this this type of device and this technology. It's a, it's amazing. Just 24 hours after surgery, Ryan is taking his very first steps and feels he's on his way to walking tall. The procedure does not come cheap. The cost a whopping $75,000. I don't want to do it. I got to look at the comments. When the doctor was bopping his leg with the hammer, I felt that. I feel bad for him. He doesn't need to do all of this. You can tell his girl his girl already loves him for who he is. This is true. I mean, she loved dude, she loves him enough to allow him to undergo this surgery. Like that's love. That's real. We can't diss this man. Everyone has insecurities and people either accept them or change them and that's fine. That's a great sentiment except you can't change your height. Like, doing, okay, I personally, I'm not a fan of cosmetic surgeries, like leg lengthening, um, nose jobs, unless it's like obviously impeding your, your fucking quality of life, like you have a deviated septum and you can't breathe, like, because it just all looks weird afterward like it looks like something's off lip filler stuff like that there are things there are cosmetic surgeries that people can undergo to alleviate certain things they may be insecure about like whether it's liposuction or um like i know you can get surgery to fix varicose veins or whatever or it's like if you just lost a lot of weight and you get surgery to remove all the excess skin like those are those are plastic surgeries that i can get behind because like you know it's tough sometimes, but bro, your height, your height, your height, man. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl that looked good. I would call her true. It's unnecessary. A lot of women get plastic surgery because of beauty standards. Men get height surgery for beauty standards. I mean, yeah, and it's all fucked up either way. Like, it's just... Uh, byproduct of everyone being chronically online and like 
caring about all these unachievable beauty standards. Like it's it's silly. <laughs> LOL I'm five seven L LOL I'm five seven LOL. I used to worry about my height, but then I stopped caring. This is this was the most unnecessary surgery I've ever seen said by a tall person. Alright, we're done here. I'm done. I'm done looking at comments. I can't take any more. As always, thank you guys so much for coming to hang out with me. If this is your first time, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Everything that I'm associated with is down in the description box below. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, YouTube channel as well. Be sure to subscribe to that. Be sure to follow if you're watching here on Twitch. I go live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, yeah, if you're listening to this as a podcast, leave a like, rating, review, whatever on your preferred podcast player if you enjoyed this episode tell a friend about it if you didn't enjoy this episode also tell a friend about it no press is bad press and with that i'll catch y'all in the next one